You know, recently the president of CBS Television Network was inducted into the Academy of Television Hall of Fame. Doesn't that seem strange? He's not an actor, he wasn't at the time anyways, he doesn't sing or dance or do anything, he's, a, he's an administrator, but he, they inducted him into the, uh, into the Television Hall of Fame. Interesting Hall of Fames, there's so many of them, Football Hall of Fame, Baseball, even a Firefighters Hall of Fame. The one in Phoenix, Arizona is called the Firefighters Hall of Flame. They don't call it Hall of Fame, they call it Hall of Flame. Now I say this to underscore the idea that in every area endeavor there are those who aspire to greatness. And that greatness is rewarded in a variety of ways. You know, financial success, the accumulation of power and position. Uh, of course, the recognition of one's accomplishment with trophies and awards. And of course, the ultimate attaboy, induction and immortality into some hall of fame or another. Now, if you Google the keywords hall of fame, you'll find out that there are 257 halls of fame and walks of fame for every imaginable activity and achievement. However, there's one category missing, one area that has no trophy, no memorial of some kind in a building somewhere, no hall of fame, no walk of fame, and that is for those who have achieved spiritual greatness. There's no hall of fame anywhere for those who have achieved spiritual greatness. Of course, this is not to say that one could not become great in the kingdom of God. If it were not so, why did Jesus speak specifically to those who wanted to be great among his followers in Matthew 5, 19, Matthew 8, 18, verse 1 and following? Talks about some of his followers who wanted to be you know, considered as great in the kingdom. Over and over again, he gives instructions to those Hall of Fame types who wanted to be great or greatest in the kingdom. And you know why he did that? Because he knew that some, for whatever reason, would have this natural human desire. Many people you know, have the need to excel, to just win, to be first, to, you know, just to try harder for some reason or other, and I don't think it's any different in the spiritual realm. That's why Jesus was talking about if you want to be great in the kingdom. We, we sometimes think, oh, that must have been a negative thing. That's a no-no. You should never try to be great in the kingdom. Jesus didn't say you shouldn't try to be great in the kingdom. He just told people what they had to do in order to be considered great in the kingdom. And so the path to greatness, Jesus explained, lay in a person's intimate knowledge and understanding of the virtue of humility. You want to be great, he said, that's okay. But if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you have to learn how to humble yourself. You see, in the world, people who aspire to greatness study the subject of greatness, the manners of great people, the heights, that the great ones reach. Jesus 
completely reversed this idea and taught his followers, especially those who aspired to greatness, and there were some, we know of them, Peter, John, Paul, to name a few. Jesus taught them that the way to achieve greatness was to cultivate this virtue of humility. He said this because it was the things that humility produced in a person's character that determined who was spiritually great, who was spiritually greater, and who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so in order to give you an example of this in someone's life, I'd like to focus on Moses and his journey to spiritual greatness. Perhaps his exercise can guide all of those who may yearn for the ability to be greater spiritually than they are at the moment. Remember, it's not a bad thing to want to be great spiritually. It's just not achieved in the same way that we have greatness in this world. Now, if there was anyone among God's people at that time who was prepared by the world for greatness, it was Moses. He was raised at the seat of the greatest power on earth at that time, and that was the Egyptian empire. He benefited from a royal education, a privileged lifestyle in the house of Pharaoh, and a special position within his society. He also had the knowledge of the true God given to him by his Jewish mother. And so as a young man, indignant at the treatment of his Jewish countrymen, he made a stab at greatness by killing an Egyptian slave master and trying to rally the people as some kind of moral leader. And his efforts failed as both the Jewish and Egyptian people turned against him and he had to flee to the desert for his safety. And we know that he spent 40 years in the desert tending sheep and raising a family in a simple lifestyle before God would call him to lead his people out of Egypt and out of slavery. You could almost say till the time that God would call him to greatness. Now we're all familiar with Moses' experiences leading God's people in the wilderness for 40 years. During this time Moses uh, exercised judgment over the people. He taught them. He, he, he interceded with God on their behalf. He led them from camp to camp. He fought wars and he spent many a lonely night fasting and praying for his people. The wilderness period saw many high points where Moses led the people to build the tabernacle and to begin formal worship and also low points where God punished the people, even Moses himself for their disobedience and their rebellion. And all of this culminates in Numbers chapter 27 when the Lord informs Moses of two great events which are to take place in his life in the near future. The first event is Moses will get to actually see the promised land but will not be able to go into it with the people. And then the second thing he's informed of is that he is about to die in a short, amount of, a short amount of time. Now what's interesting about this announcement is Moses' reaction to it. His very first impulse is not to argue or mourn about his impending death, even though the Bible says he was perfectly healthy at the time. His first impulse is to ask God to provide a good leader to take his place and to continue the work that he himself 
had been doing. This reaction on Moses' part reveals the great change in his character from the days when he aspired to greatness using his own strength and his own wisdom and the difference that it made in using God's wisdom and the way he had been trained in the way of humility. And so at the, ease of, at the eve of his demise, Moses' great humility and thus his spiritual greatness shines through and demonstrates the character of those who are great in God's kingdom. For example, we see that Moses, first of all, had very little self-will. Let's read a part of the passage. We're not going to read the whole chapter. But in chapter 27, beginning in verse 12, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Meribah in, uh, or, or of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Notice Moses, no self-will here. Did you hear him talk? Did you hear him say anything? Did you hear any complaining there? Moses truly was without self-will after decades of searching and finding and doing God's will in every kind of situation. He accepts God's decision about his own death without a single word. I mean, he's perfectly healthy. The Bible says so. He had done all this work. He had, he had suffered so much. He had persevered for 40 years and all he gets is a, a glimpse of where he was you know, hoping to be after such a long and arduous journey. And God says, well, you're, not gonna, you're gonna see it, but you won't go there. Oh, and by the way, it's time to die. <laughs> not a word, nothing, no buts, no nothing. So Moses accepted God's will without hesitation and without questioning why. I wouldn't have blamed him if he would have said, Lord, why? Why now? I'm still healthy. I could go in there. I could do a lot of good. Look, I got 40 years experience with these people. You know, who else could bring them into the land? If I've been good for the last 40, surely, Lord, surely, surely you're mistaken. Because <laughs> it doesn't make sense to take me out now. But this is what true humility is, not just understanding our own self-worth. Moses demonstrated Christ-like humility, not his will, not his rationale. And that's the thing that trips us up when we're talking to God, when we're trying to figure things out. We're always using our rationale. How I see things makes perfect sense to me, God. I don't know why you don't see it. Not his will, not his rationale for how things should be, but God's will even in life and death situations, especially in life or death situations. Many brothers and sisters, you know, they're willing to obey God and you know, kind of your will be done. You know, uh, oh, the elders have decided we'll have a meeting at four o'clock today before worship. Oh Lord, your will be done. You know, I'll turn off the golf and I'll be there at four o'clock. But how about when God says, okay, it's time to die now? 
You know, we, we trust Him with the little things. You know, why, why do we not trust Him? Why do we question so much when the big things come around? Secondly, Moses' greatness is also seen not only in his lack of self-will, but also in his ability to focus on God's purpose and not his own. Let's go back to the passage in Numbers 27, pick it up in verse 15. It says, then Moses spoke to the Lord. Notice, now he speaks. No whining, no why, how come? No questioning, but he does speak. And watch what he says. May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Notice that his first concern was for the people's welfare, not his own. The first words that come out of his mouth are not, why are you doing this? Or, this can't be right. The first word that come out of his mouth is the thing he doesn't understand. Well, if I'm going to die, Lord, who's going to take my place? God's purpose and plan was bound up in the people of Israel. They were the ones through whom the Messiah would eventually come. They were the charge that Moses had been given so long ago. And his concern is for them, not for himself. Moses was secure enough in God's love that he could even, at a critical moment of his life, stay focused on what was important, not to him, but to God. He could see the impact that his death would have on the people that he had led for so long. Do you see it? Do you see the humility? He wasn't complaining or questioning the impact of his death on him. He was questioning the impact of his death on the people, God's people. Moses remained centered on what God had given him to do even when the temptation was great to shift his attention to himself. You know, those who aspire to spiritual greatness must be able to remain focused on God and His purpose even when there are storms of trials and temptations around us. Yeah, I'm about God's business unless something happens and then I have to focus on only my business. And finally, Moses' spiritual greatness, seen in the fact that he lacked self-will, that he stayed focused on God's purpose even during a time of trial. And thirdly, we see it in the power that he had. We keep reading chapter 27, pick it up now in verse 18. It says, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, there's the spirit and Marty and I were talking about this morning, uh, we were, he talked about, but we visited after church and it was remarkable. We didn't discuss who was preaching what uh, this Sunday. And it's remarkable that we're both preaching and teaching about the Spirit. It says, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. 
Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. I want you to notice here that Moses prepares and anoints and instructs Joshua, his successor. Now in the balance of the book and the next book of Deuteronomy, Moses provides the people with instructions on worship and their conduct and a review of all the things that he's taught them as they go forward into their future promised land. We note especially in these passages that the people readily accept his leadership and his teaching because of the power that he had. Now, if you read the entire book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you will see that Moses' power was based on his humility. He did not fight anyone for his You never saw a, a power struggle where Moses is struggling with someone else for power, even though he was often challenged. What did you see Moses do when his power was challenged? Well, he would go before God in prayer for who? For himself? Oh God, please don't let him take away my power. No. He would go before God, you know, tear his clothes, go before God and mourn for the people who challenged his power. Have mercy on them, God. He did not debate. He didn't scheme to keep his position. On the contrary, he was constantly pleading with God on his knees, on behalf of his people, even when they attacked him. Wow, that's humility. You see, Moses' complete lack of effort to control, his complete lack of effort to rule, to win over the people, coupled with his total dependence on God, provided him with the power that he needed to rule to have authority. When God's leaders become tired, many times it's because they are relying too much on their own strength and not enough on God's strength. And I think that goes not only for God's leaders but all of God's people. Moses shows us that when God's leaders humble themselves before God and others, then God Himself will raise them up and He will empower them to lead whether it be nations or families or congregations or whatever. The Bible shows that Moses was Israel's greatest leader and tells us that he also was the humblest man on earth. Numbers chapter 12 verse 3. The greatest leader, imagine, the greatest leader, the most humble. So what does this tell us? Well first of all it tells us that the key to success in the kingdom of God is humility. If you want to be great, if you want to do great things in the kingdom, you begin by cultivating the virtue of humility. I'll tell you why, I'll tell you how, and then the lesson be yours. Why humility? Why humility? Why cultivate this virtue first and foremost? Well, I think one of the reasons is because we control this. We don't control anything else, but we do control this. This is the task 
that God gives us to do. We swallow our pride. We lower ourselves. We submit to Him. We humble ourselves before others. We accept our limitations. We acknowledge our sins. We acknowledge our failures and weaknesses. We have control over this part of our lives and God controls the rest. That things grow, that things multiply, that things go well, that things develop, that things move forward, that things go up. All the details behind these things are in God's control. He says yes, He says no, He says up or down, He says not now, not you, not this time. He's the one that says that. Oh, we, we work at these things, we plan, we execute, we study, so on and so forth, but the final results, these are in God's hands. How many times do I have to repeat the passage in 1 Corinthians 3.6 where Paul says, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but who was giving the growth? God was giving the growth. God provides great success and God blesses those who humble themselves before Him. Again, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Peter writes, God is opposed to the proud. It's not just God doesn't like the proud. Or God you know, is annoyed with the proud. Or God laughs at the proud. Think about this. God is opposed to the proud. I don't want to be in any position where God is actually opposing me. My opponent is God. And yet the Bible says God opposes the proud. He works against you. And then what does it say? But He gives grace. He gives favor. To whom? The humble. And therein lies the key to greatness in the kingdom. Those who humble themselves, God will make them great. There's perfect symmetry here, perfect balance. We control the humbling part, He controls the great part. As we lower ourselves in humility, He raises us up in spiritual greatness. I'm not saying I'm going to be rich, I'm going to be famous, I'm going to be powerful, but in lowering myself in humility, God will raise me up spiritually to be great. No other system works. No other method in the kingdom gets results. You cannot force God to make you great in any other way. This is why humility is the pathway to spiritual greatness. It is the only thing that's in our control. It's the only thing of value, including our faith, that we have to offer to God. That's the why. Let's look at the how. How humility. Last question. How do we do it? How do we cultivate this virtue? How do we become humble? I mean, it's a tricky thing because just talking about being humble or developing humility smacks of pride and boastfulness, doesn't it? <laughs> Anybody that goes around saying, you know, Man, I used to be proud last year, but now, man, I really got this humble thing down pat. You know, you're thinking, oh, yeah, you may need a little more work there, Bubba. But simply looking at Moses' life does help us understand the process, because it is a process. I believe Moses' vision or insight into two areas continually nurtured his humble attitude. What he saw and what he understood in two ways helped him to develop this virtue. First of all, the view that Moses had of himself. 
Moses knew himself well. He knew his own history, he knew his own character, he knew his weaknesses and his sins. He knew the depths of his sinful nature in remembering that he killed a man. He took a life in anger. He knew his own weaknesses and he acknowledged these to God when God wanted him to be a leader and spokesperson, a spokesman for his people. Remember when God went to call him to go to Pharaoh? Did Moses say, well, it's about time. I've been, you know, I've been marking time here in the desert just waiting to get back into action. Finally. No. He said, oh, Lord, me? No, 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 you don't want me. I'm the wrong guy. I, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. You know, I'm the wrong guy. That 40 years in the desert sure, you know, whew, you know, sanded down his character, didn't it? He knew the depravity of human nature as a leader of millions who had to settle their disputes and punish their evil behavior. In short, Moses knew the true person that he was without any kind of denial or rationalization. You want to be humble? You want to work and cultivate that virtue? You first have to know yourself. And then the second vision that he had, Moses knew God. From the early teachings of his mother to the burning bush, from the awesome miracles to free the Jews from Egypt to the many face-to-face -face encounters with God on the mountain, Moses knew God better and more intimately than any man of his or previous generations. His knowledge of God was first-hand and personal, not just theoretical or from hearsay. Now my point is that when Moses compared the two visions, of his weak sinful self and of the holy mighty God, when he looked at these two visions, this produced humility in him that seeped through his character and all of his dealings with God and with other people and with himself. You know, I know we like lists, you know, top ten things to do to become humble or top three exercises to create humility, but it just doesn't work that way. Humility is the product of discovery. As we discover our true selves and the true God, a sense of humility overtakes us and grows as we, as we deepen and broaden our knowledge of these two areas. Perhaps I can suggest a few things as I close out that will at least put you on the path of discovery. So first of all, if you want to get on this path of discovery, I would suggest that you set aside a specific time each day to read God's word and to pray. Each Sunday, you know, I see the attendance, attendance 295 or attendance 325, you know, which is encouraging. We have a little over 400 people, but you know, I'd like to see 400 people. But anyways, 300, 325. But then I look at the part that's marked regular Bible readers, and out of 325, we got maybe 46 of those. 46. 46 saints out of the 325. The question is, do you read your Bible every day? Is it, are you a regular reader? At least three times, three times a week. I'll tell you something, pushing aside the world 
and our own activities for God is in itself an act of humility. You want to watch the news, you want, I want to see what's going on, well who won the game yesterday, what was the score, you know, blah blah blah, and the, you know, the Bible is there on your night table, on the, or the, the, you know, the, it should be on the table next to the remote. <laughs> so that every time you reach for the remote your hand has to pass over your Bible as a reminder. It is an act of humility to say I'm going to put the world on hold for a moment here so that I can read God's word and take a moment to reflect in prayer about the day that I've had and the things that are swirling around in my head and in my heart. That's an act of humility. Secondly, begin asking God for different things in your prayer life. Instead of asking for things, instead of asking to be happier or healthier or more at peace, begin asking Him to reveal the real you to you. Ask, ask Him, Lord, reveal me to me. Show me who I am. You know me, you see me. Show me that vision of myself. And I guarantee you that is a prayer that He will answer. And usually it's a humbling experience. I assure you of that. And then try doing the thing that God wants you to do. If this was a discussion and if you had the courage to do it, you know, we could go around and I could say, think about it for a moment and you tell me, what is it that God wants you to do? And I think every single one of us here knows exactly what God wants us to do. It's different from person to person, obviously. But I am persuaded that every single person here knows exactly exactly what God wants them to do. It's different for each of us, but in every life there's something that God wants from us. Try finding out what that is and begin making that the focus of your life for a change. This can become the first step in lowering yourself before God so that He can ultimately lift you up in spiritual greatness. Of course, Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. You know, we talked about great, greater, greatest. We want to be greater. Well, let's face it, the greatest in the kingdom. The greatest in the kingdom is Jesus. Because He emptied Himself completely and accepted God's will in death to save us. And now He sits in the greatest position at the right hand of God, the right hand of power. It is no accident that our first step into discipleship, our first entry into the kingdom, is when we lower ourselves into the waters of baptism and return greater than when we were before we confess the name of Christ. And so if this is God's will for you, if you're thinking, hmm, preacher said I'm supposed to know what God wants of me, could be a variety of things. Maybe I need to get a hold of a particular sinful habit that I've just ignored. Maybe I need to respond to a, a call for help from someone in my family or around me. 
Maybe I need to watch my tongue more because of the way I speak. Maybe it's crude or coarse. Uh, maybe it's mean-spirited. Maybe I gossip too much. I don't know. Maybe I'm not as honest as I ought to be or as honest I, as I know I should be. And maybe, just maybe, the thing that God is asking me to do is to confess Christ and to be buried in the waters of baptism. So whatever it is that you need help in doing, in taking that first step on the road to humility and greatness in the kingdom of God, we invite you to do that now as we stand and as we sing our song of encouragement. <laughs>